0: This is Gil Manser and our radio engineer Anthony Garcia. Hello. Welcome you to a brand new year on Word by Word Conversations with Writers show, produced by Northern California Public Media, KRCB FM. We want to juggle things up a bit, so our first guest for 2019 is the internationally renowned juggler, clown, teacher, playwright, and author Jeff Raz. Jeff began his career at 15 as a street juggler in Berkeley, and those who live locally may remember seeing him. A graduate of Del Art and international, he has performed in Le Cirque du Soleil, Broadway plays including Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors. He co-founded the Vaudeville Nouveau, Vaudeville Nouveau, wow, in 1982, the San Francisco New Vaudeville Festival in 85, the New Pickle Family Circus in 93, the Circus Center Clown Conservatory in 2000, and The Medical Clown Project in 2010. He has written 15 plays, including Fatherland with J.L. Weissman, and has directed dozens of circus puppet and theater productions. His first book, A Secret Life of Clowns, a backstage tour of Cirque du Soleil and the Clown Conservatory, was launched at the Smithsonian in 2017. But it's his latest book, The Snow Clown, Cartwheels on Borders from Alaska to Nebraska, A creative nonfiction book inspired by Jeff's eye-opening and soul-searching trips to teach and clown around in Alaska and Nebraska from the 70s to the 90s is what we'll be talking about today. Jeff, I want to thank you for a thoroughly captivating book and welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you, Gil. It's great to be here. As I read through the pages, I kept coming across mixed feelings about labeling yourself a clown. So tell us what that title means to you today. Oh, I've included the word clown
1: in both of the titles of my book. So I'm pretty comfortable with it, though it means different things to different people. There's absolutely no doubt about it. When I launched The Secret Life of Clowns last year at the mm-hmm. Smithsonian, there was a big circus festival. The It was the 50th anniversary of the Folklife Festival. Oh, yeah. And it ended up being all about circus. And I ran the clown alley, so I got to talk to as many of the 600,000 guests as you've we You've got to tell
0: our listeners a little bit about Clown Alley and the tradition ah, there.
1: So Clown Alley is the name of the part of any circus backstage or the back lot uh, that is where the clowns are usually put on makeup. If, in this case, we were calling uh, a booth that was talking about clowning Clown Alley uh, using some of the, the terminology. Right, right. But I, I got to basically talk about clowning with People who are really interested, folks, folks who come to the Smithsonian are genuinely interested in what's the real history here. And I had a lot of different professional clowns with me, so we got to explore what the full range of clowning is, as well as a lot of the stereotypes that people came in with. Mm -hmm. Are we talking Stephen King? No, we're not. (laughs) Are we talking only? Good thing too. Yes. Yes. Are we talking only in a circus ring? Mm, We're talking a lot about a circus ring, but we're also talking about theaters. We're talking about hospitals, and if we get back in some history, we're talking about where clowning and healthcare were pretty similar Mm -hmm. in in Mm -hmm. shamanistic rituals and uh, into that type of history. So it means a lot of things. For me, it means, especially here in the Bay Area, it means someone who has studied the history of clowning, has worked, in my case, on the streets, in rings, in circus rings, and on stages Mm -hmm. doing clowning. The Bay Area tradition includes a lot of theater as well. Right. The folks well, like Bill Irwin, Jeff Hoyle, John Mankin, or uh, myself are all crossover
0: using both. This book focuses on you primarily in a classroom. Right. Yes. The, so that is a, a shall we say a illogical jump I guess for many people they don't mm-hmm. see clowns uh, They may see somebody who does, you know, balloon animals coming into a classroom oh, or interesting. a musician, you know, who has a clown face coming in. But not to do the repertoire, the, the gymnastics, the uh, overextension of, you know, a person by the, their facial expressions mm-hmm. and body movements.
1: I like that, uh, an overextension. I backdoored, as with many of my colleagues, backdoored into teaching uh, – I'm not sure if that's an actual word, backdoored. i, I now, understood now inventing what man, that work. Okay. Uh, we, Came
0: in an unlikely path. Thank you. There we go. The – I think
1: for most young performers, you just want to perform. Right. And yet you also have to pay rent. And that's the great gift that I have finally figured out American performers have. We give the gift of having to pay rent. And not have being subsidized. And that's also the great challenge. Right. Teaching becomes that gig, that side gig that kind of keeps you in the business. But it's a little more regular than, than performing. And you can do it between your performing gigs. Mm-hmm. And for me, as for many people, it was that other gig, that day job kind of thing for a long time. Until at some point I said, you know, I'm not doing this as well as I should. You're not teaching as that well? i not teaching as well as I should. Why is it that this group of people who I call a class are less valuable than this group of people who I call an audience? What is the value structure there? This group of people, I, I started teaching at a bilingual preschool in the Mission District, mm-hmm. Compañeros del Barrio. Why is that group I of I actually kids? know that school. Yeah. Yeah. So why are they less important than the audience for a show? And when I asked that question, the answer, of course, came back, they're they're not. They're not. These are human beings. So that I had to do a little rework. And the truth is I did that rework between the two sections of
0: this book now that I think about it. Okay. So you were – That's a good. there's my answer. I was going to say how old were you at the time, right? So so I had
1: done – when I went to Alaska, it was pretty early in my career. 24 were you? I was – yeah, about 24 maybe. maybe. Uh, First time I went to Alaska, I think I was – 22 22 right? okay a very ambitious young performer and first time i went up there i was performing at the alaska state fair mm-hmm. with a juggling group and it was you know we were all that it was fun and, and the alaska state fair there's two of them there's one in the southern part of alaska and one in the northern part one for the white folk and one for the natives no one for the folks
0: <laughs> who, who live in Anchorage, and one for the folks who gotcha. are near fairbanks
1: okay. a different separation uh but we—that's where I met the, the the woman who eventually booked us out in Southwest Alaska, yes. which is the Yupik villages, and, and we were in the Yupik villages. Okay.
0: I should mention this, although I don't know how important it's going to be. Is this is a fictional version of events? It is fictionalized. It is so. But there's when I refer to you did this. Yeah. I'm making the extrapolations that most of the incidents that you share are personally observed.
1: Most of them are. I say in the introduction, and, and I'll stick with this: that in the book, you could you can assume that things that have to do with the work, most of them, actually happen. Probably in not that order, but actually happen uh, things in the personal life of the protagonist. And basically, your sex life. Exactly, is completely invented. Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> it's the truth, actually. Yes. Oh, that's disappointing because you know that age up there in the frozen tundra etc
1: yeah yeah it's the frozen tundra and you're sleeping on the floor of a gym right yeah and that, on, on the blue uh, exercise on mats. the blue exercise mats on the floor of the gym and there's no one that not even anyone you could ask out because there's no out to go right it, it, well you would could you, step out and
0: freeze to death right would you like yeah, to step no. out
1: and freeze to death or come over to the cafeteria or for some spam
0: i mean go to the sauna
1: or go to the sauna, yes.
0: <laughs> and you not only go to one sauna, you go to several sauna. Yes, that's Different true. people inside there with you. But, mm. but you have to read the book to read that fun part. Okay. This is from the East Bay Times. When you are a performer, this is you speaking, the magic moment is when you hear of or see of a role that is perfect for you. That doesn't happen often, and that is magic you don't take lightly. Is that what you thought at the time when you were given the opportunity to go up to the villages?
1: No. No, not at
0: all. I was
1: nervous about it. What it, it sounds so uncool, but it it was good money, uh-huh. and it was an adventure.
0: Right. So it was a short term gig, but Absolutely. it paid well because it was money coming. I think from the federal government, or, uh, from or, the state. From the, the state. Sta- okay. The Alaska state Arts of- Council was which in was those funded days. by the. The oil, Right. They had a yes. reverse income
1: tax in those days. Yeah. I don't know if they still do, but they everyone got paid. I think everybody gets paid, paid a certain amount yeah. of money,
0: yeah, is my understanding. So how did you feel at the time?
1: I, the adventure was exciting. You tell your friends, I'm going up to Alaskan villages in the middle of winter. It's going to be negative 30. Everyone goes, whoa. Uh, when I got there, it was just hard. And then... That first time I went up, I went up for nine weeks. We did 11 villages in nine weeks. And as I got into it, I started to realize, well, there's a lot more happening here than what I thought. I thought I was hired to teach some juggling and do some shows. Right. Well, there's this whole world because television had just come into the villages. They just put up these giant discs out on the tundra. And uh, this was a second wave of, I'm going to call it cultural genocide, but I think I'm not overstating it. The first wave being that the parents and grandparents got sent to the schools in Oklahoma right. in in the lower forty eight, and the language
0: was yeah the separation to to Americanize them exactly yeah. Uh, then
1: this next wave in the seventies they had gotten a high school in each village, uh, and this next wave though was television and this image of of Dallas. I did walk by um, a house when I was in a village I don't remember which one, and I saw. Uh, grandma sitting on a, the one chair with all the kids, maybe four or five kids. Personal space is very different up in Eskimo Village. That's one University of the things
0: inside. you said is the kids would get very uh, close absolutely. to you, sit on your lap, et cetera. Absolutely. Et cetera.
1: And that everything's small because you have to heat whatever inside space whatever inside space you carve out, you gotta heat. Right. And and that's expensive. You didn't find
0: hard. that to be true with the preschool you were working with before in San Francisco?
1: It was, but I went home.
0: Ah, yes. Yes. Uh, you don't go home. No. Anyway, this image is walking by, and this grandma
1: with the kids, and, and I looked, and they were watching TV, and they were watching Dallas, the show Dallas, and that it, just at that moment it broke my heart because the Ewings, exactly, yes. and there was you know it was it was hard hard for young people, I think, hard for older people to see that and say, oh, oh, that's America.
0: Not an um, America I know. Not a, nothing that I <laughs> no. know about. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, what were your impressions before you left about Native Alaskans? And you really met two different groups. You 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 refer, I think, you even used the word Eskimo in here once. Is that correct?
1: Yes, the, folks. I was almost exclusively in Yupik villages, right. and Yupik people can call themselves Eskimos. So we call that Central Alaska. It's southeastern, south so it's Eastern. all that tundra. If you if you draw a line between Anchorage and Fairbanks, Anchorage to the south, Fairbanks to the north. Uh, there's still uh, a landmass larger than Texas going west mm-hmm. all the way out to the Aleutians, right. and if you just keep going, you get to Russia pretty quickly, to Siberia. Or two and a well, half miles from Russia. Exactly, exactly. It's, right. it's really close between um, some of the islands out there. So that there's a lot of Yupik folks. There's also Aleuts and Athabascans, right. and and some other. Almost everybody I worked with, uh, in I went up there ten times. Almost everybody I worked with was Yupik and uh, right. in, in the villages
0: and they have a specific language endemic yes. to that group yes, yes. Uh, and you which is dying out when you came
1: it was there was they they were teaching it in the schools there was some movement I don't know where that is now mm-hmm. uh, some villages like this village Eek E E K E E K Eek, E-E-K, Eek uh, had the language was strong everyone spoke it
0: the that was English one of the villages also strong the later village for you wasn't your first one
1: it was not my first one no yes no uh, then some villages like St. Michael's, which I went to uh years a few years later towards the it's the second Section. set of the book yeah. uh the English was really totally predominant, and the Yupik teacher was very part time and it was yeah different different will get
0: into that village a little later okay so as you were putting this book together. You've done an interesting thing. You've combined works, in, in parts from other works that mm-hmm. you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, there are what I guess you would call independent essays, you know, through the eyes of different characters, not the protagonist, yeah. that are in a different typeface, usually on a page by themselves, and it gives you. It's it's really an interesting technique, because it gives you a different perspective on what you've just you know read about. And I thank you for doing that.
1: Well, I'm really glad to hear that. The re- I put those in because it was a mis- I misunderstood my editor. Oh, my editor lives in Uganda. He's, he's
0: well. It could be easily turned, you know, because they're always sending these emails to me about their princes, and they have, you know. Well, so that's, that's right.
1: a, that may not be my editor. It may be. I'm <laughs> not actually sure. Uh, he's from San Francisco, but he he married a a woman in Uganda. They have a they have a two year old. And so we do a lot of it by a lot of our the editing by email and right. occasionally by Skype. He sent me an email that I read a little too quickly, and I thought he was saying you should put in little third person mm-hmm. uh, sections at the end. And it just hit me like, what a good idea! Because it's so much from the protagonist's point of view. It's a first person book, right? Implying what other people may be thinking, mm-hmm. but that gave me a chance to be a little. A little bit more specific. So I always – my editor is brilliant, Doug Cruickshank, Krunk, Krunk, excuse me for his last name. And so I do what he asks. So I immediately started writing them and I liked them. Oh, sent so you hadn't couple. written them before? No. I, oh. It was almost – the manuscript was almost done. It wasn't really all the way there, but it certainly was in draft five or – I do a lot of drafts. So it was probably draft five or six. And I sent one to him and he goes, what's this? I said, this is exactly what you asked for. And he said, could you look at that other email? And he had, he had, it was a totally different suggestion. But I'm really glad I misunderstood because it, it just felt like you need to turn the camera around yeah, a little yeah. bit uh, and see – and especially the one of the girl in the high school in Nebraska.
0: Uh, oh, gosh, yes. That's, and, that's very te- – well, I, I, it's interesting you picked that one out. I think the one that was – well, which one? Tina's perspective mm-hmm. was good. The older women sitting together yes. talking about what they've just observed yes. is fascinating, fabulous. Um, but the one that stuck with me, maybe because I think it was the first one, was the young man with the unicycle. Oh, good. The
1: first one I wrote, uh, the background is – so again, Yeah, reality, was the background. What there was reality is that a lot of the Eskimo kids could pick up on circus skills at an incredible rate. Right. And the first kid we noticed was one of the first villages I did on my first trip to the to the villages uh, was a kid who learned to ride a unicycle, which is not easy, no. in an hour in a classroom not that much bigger than the room we're sitting in with 25 other kids juggling on stilts. And it was amazing to watch. First of all, this group of kids managed space. mm mm-hmm. And safety in a way that – But they're used to working
0: in small – in closed Absolutely. You have to Protected heat every spaces.
1: square right. inch of air. Uh, and he learned to ride the unicycle that day. By the end of the week, he could ride it forward, backwards. Uh, he could idle. He, I, I was riding unicycle a, a reasonable amount. I wasn't great right. at it. Right. But he was better than me at the end of the week
0: and we were going – Wow. Absolutely. So essentially what we're going to do is now you're going to read a section that is from the point of view – What's his, the boy's name? George Mackey is George – they're all right. fictional characters. And he's a proxy, Mackey. yes, but he was how old?
1: Um, he, is, he is uh, a junior or sophomore in high school, a okay. small, uh, small. small boy. The size of a fifth grader, exactly.
0: that's what you yeah. said, right.
1: George Mackey can't sleep. He can still feel the unicycle seat between his legs. He wants to run over to the gym and ride all night, ride even with no one watching and no one applauding. Rolling on that wheel, feeling the muscles in his legs, turning his hips so he stays on balance, he feels whole, like he and the unicycle were separated at birth, but now they're back together, and he is the man he's supposed to be. George has read about centaurs, and he gets the idea that he's a modern-day version, half-man, half-wheel. George sits up in bed. He relives the audience, urging him to ride again and again, faster and faster, then he thinks about the girls after the show, the ones who've always called him Shorty and Baby Georgie. They looked at him with eyes that made him shiver. He'd only seen that look from the side, watching the girls, watching the strong boys wrestle or the tall boys shoot hoops. And the old ladies who always pinch his arms and say, you need to eat more agudik." Those same grandmas kissed him and smothered his face into their sealskin cuspucks. George decides he'll buy his own unicycle when this one flies off with the clowns. He misses his bottom half already. He wonders how much a unicycle costs. He wonders which catalog carries them and if he can somehow find enough money. Then he imagines his new unicycle nestled between huge bags of diapers and kegs of cooking oil in the shipping container that arrives in Queethluk every year a few weeks after breakup.
0: Breakup meaning the ice. Falling ice cream, right? yeah. So what you do is you've left the reader hanging. Here is this boy who is mm-hmm. looking for this talisman to change his life. It already has. Mm-hmm. Now he has to find a way to obtain, you know, we're back to this mythic quest, this magical device which makes him feel the way he feels and hopefully gain the attention of the young woman that he knows. But we don't know if he ever gets it until way later in the book, and I'm not going to tell our listeners what happens. Okay, is that fair? Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Now there's there's some really funny side bits where you explain. I think probably the thing that surprises you when you arrive is how the kids take care of, of your curly hair. And your lo- rather large nose, which doesn't seem that large when I meet you in person. But compared to a Native American, I mean, uh, Alaskan's nose, it's huge, yeah. right? Because it, otherwise, it would have gotten frozen off. Absolutely. Right. right. And it almost did. Almost <laughs> did. That's right. And your feet. How are your feet? <laughs> um,
1: my feet are fine, but they do get you know, my got fingers got frostbite from, my, Yeah, I got yeah. Uh, not Not uh, bad enough to be uh, amputated. amputated or anything. But, yeah, uh, yeah you, you,
0: you get them really cold a few times and it uh, – they get cold again. Right. So tell us about the reaction to your nose and your curly hair and how you explained it as an infant.
1: Yeah. So the – I am Jewish and at the time my hair was longer than it is now and it was darker colored. Um, I was just pointed to Anthony's whose hair is colored, the color that my hair was then. And Eskimo kids – the Their noses are much smaller, Mm -hmm. and the moment you land, you know why, because the wind whips across and you have a hood on, and if the nose is sticking out past the hood, you're getting 20 below plus the wind chill, and there's not enough circulation in there to make you happy. I made a little nose guard made of rabbit fur and and wore it. So they're fascinated. There's 150, 250 people in the village, depending on the size. Um, They're all Yupik except for the teachers. The teachers keep their distance a Mm -hmm. lot, so... Mm -hmm. There's no hotel. There's nowhere to stay in a village. So there's not a lot of visitors. Right. There's there's the teachers who come for a year, two, three years. Then there's the st- state troopers who you try to stay away from. Who arrive and, occasionally when yeah. when there's some trouble. Yeah, and then there's the visiting artists. So they're just fascinated, and they were asking, "Were you born with this?" And and I said yes, and and they just were so shocked, and I realized they thought the nose was my adult sized nose on a tiny baby. <laughs> Uh, But some of the kids had curly hair because they used a tony hair... Permit. Permit. It's a home perm. Right. And there was this time, and I I do write a scene of it in the book, where the kids are sitting there. And, of course, there's no personal space. So there's five, six kids feeling your hair and your nose. And you're sitting there, if you're me, going, this is okay. This is a cultural experience. And totally uncomfortable. Right. So I tried to describe. I was born with this. And then I tried to get into, well... My nose is from desert people, Jewish people in the desert. That idea, you know, exactly what's a desert, what do we mean? And yours is from the history of Yupik people. And my hair, I didn't do anything to it. And the little kids are just shocked. It right. was like, you're a unicorn. Then the, <laughs> the high school kids with the curly hair just waited till the perfect moment. And under their breasts said, Tony. Yep. And the little kids turned and went, oh, He's lying to us. He used Tony like everybody else. That's right. He's just trying to make this stuff up.
0: Well, there's an interesting insight. They don't really trust. Well, I can't remember the term you use for the whites. Yeah, uh, Gusick. Gussick. Yeah, I'd never heard that. Before. No, unless you're up there, you don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. G u s s a c k. A k or something. something, but it's yeah. it's yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of people assume. Is, is it assume... a pejorative? It is. Yeah.
1: It, that's in, it is just what you are, and yes, it might be – the word "guiding" in, in yes, Japan right. maybe feels or similar Haole to me. in Hawaii. Yeah, "howly" in Hawaii feels a little more on the pejorative, but I would say "howly" and Gusuk might be for the same reasons and might be equivalent in right, that way.
0: Right, right. Interesting. So you had culture shock, not just the intrusion of personal space – which I think it's really fascinating because I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, born and raised too, and uh, I kept seeing deep-seated, you know, belief systems—I mm-hmm. guess I will call them—or uh, points of view that you express in the book that I realized that I had too. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as liberal as we may be in our thoughts and deeds, there's certain things, you know, like body space, that are just part of our. Our beings, yeah. right? Yeah. And you come from. Uh, let's see if I've got that. You come from a family. What do you tell us about your family? I'm not going to describe it. <laughs> you describe
1: it. <laughs> um, my father was a physics professor. Mm-hmm. My mother had been to med school and uh, didn't become a doctor. But after my dad died, we moved to Berkeley, and she went and got her PhD in sociology. Right. My brother became a biostatistician. And I became. That must a be an column. exciting conversation to have. <laughs> it's, it was always. <laughs> According to <laughs> my brother was also a wonderful teacher, and he managed to speak about biostatistics in a way that was understandable, which right. I forever am thankful for. Uh, so, but yes, my family was uh, lefty, intellectual, very academic, uh, very academic family, yeah. and, and then you came along,
0: and then I came along. And I don't know how much you want to go into this. You must understand that I'm a psychological educator, so I have a tendency to do these kind of questions. But did you, were you escaping the Bay Area and your family when you went north?
1: No, I no. don't think so. I have lived here since I was 10 and right. I always come back. Um, I think it was uh, lovely to get this adventure o- away, but I don't think it was escaping. I I would say that I learned to juggle when I was 14. Mm-hmm. And I can distinctly remember, I was working at a Renaissance fair, mm-hmm. and it was with croquet balls, big wooden croquet balls. With and, the stripe on them? Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it took me only a few minutes, and they were flying around. And in, in by the end of the day, I could juggle proficiently with, with three balls. And there was two elements of it. People, other people went, ooh, that's good. And I wasn't used to that. Mm-hmm. My I, my older brother was really a genius. And so I'm the guy who came along behind him in school. Oh, you're Jonathan's brother. Uh, yes, yes. And then a few weeks later said, it's okay. We so can't, be can't G- all be. G- you know, yeah, then, whatever. You know, so, that, so all of a sudden But then you could I, say, I could but we can't all be jugglers. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So there was the internal thing that this felt right. Like, George, when I, I wrote that – Pretty much in one sitting, the George with the unicycle, mm-hmm. because I get it. When I started juggling those, it felt like where have – I've been missing these three things that are supposed to be in my hands. Okay. And practicing it didn't feel like work early on. Yeah. Right. When you become a professional, sure. it becomes work. Yeah. Especially and when you break your, your – <laughs> shoulder, was it? My elbow. No, the elbow, the elbow, the elbow. Yeah. So – but then there was the outside in going, oh, this has got value to us in the world that's different from the value, intellectual value. And I was always a very kinesthetic person, and Mm -hmm. that was joyful to me.
0: Okay, we're going to do another thing for our listeners and talk about the Renaissance Fair, Mm because there is a whole generation who knoweth not, at least not the way it was. Are you talking Blackhawk? Where were you? Yes.
1: Definitely Blackhawk, the the northern Renaissance Fair. Yes. Now, they are still around. Renaissance Fairs are still around. I have some of my ex-students who are uh, pros at Renaissance Fairs. When I was there, it was only for a few years, we're talking about the 70s, and it was quite a scene. In Black Hawk, as you said, this big, huge, dusty lot with trees Well, with trees, stands. lots of trees. Yes. Yes. And and uh, shows and games booths, and some of my friends were got hired to run the games booth, and it sounds odd now, but it was uh, the Ronzonis were the ones right. who made it. And, right, right. Um, it, it's a teeter-totter made of wood that goes up and down, but also round and round. And we would get people in padded armor and helmets and leather straps and shields. And they would get on these and beat the crap out of each other. <laughs> and and the other part of our job was if we they had They became some... Nerf
0: swords later. Oh, is it? Yeah. 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 They were leather straps then.
1: Yeah. We also had to get so that we were so good at it we could beat anybody because mm-hmm. if someone was getting a little out of hand, was a little drunk towards the afternoon. That would happen a lot. We had to be able to get up there and do it with them and make it so they didn't want to do it again. Yes. So we would learn how to get the leather in between the the iron wrought iron of their face piece to put a little cut on their cheeks and ah. stuff like that. Again, was inside, probably not inside done. Inside information, <laughs> no.
0: All right. We need to take a break. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers. On Northern California Public Media, KRCB-FM, where our host, Gil Mancer, welcomes the internationally renowned juggler, clown, teacher, playwright, author, and raconteur, Jeff Raz, with his latest book, The Snow Clown, Cartwheels on Borders from Alaska to Nebraska. All right. I'm going to take a section here and see if you can share it with us. I think it describes... Everything we've talked about, and maybe, and kind of goes over a couple things again. But it's important for everybody to understand before we go on to the next section.
1: So the context is is in one of the villages, and it's the it's a Friday afternoon for. uh,
0: And you've just flown in in that uh, that plane where the you're up in the air, and the pilot says to you, "Take the 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 stick," right? Yeah, bush pilots.
1: Like to take naps in the air. Bush pilots are wild human beings in in every way. Uh, Yes, so we managed. We did land. The bush pilot landed, and uh, we've been teaching these kids all week, and now it's their turn to do a show. The gym fills up, and the performance is smooth, 60 kids showing off a combination of circus skills, clown makeup, and cuteness. The ball jugglers and human pyramid act are particularly good here in Kweithlik. And the audience claps so fast for George that he does his unicycle act three times. We save him from doing it again by bringing all the kids up for a final bow. After a lot of hugs, the gym is quiet and still. Tina and I pull out a cafeteria table and sit down to write the report that Stephanie, our boss, will send to the Alaska Arts Council. We try to get it done right after the kids' show so, one, we don't forget what we did, and two, we don't have to think about it over the weekend. We stick to the basics, what we taught, what they did well, how many folks came to the final show, and any issues we had with the school. Food is always on that list. We finish writing, eat some leftover meatloaf, and are in the bunk beds by 9 p.m. Jenny the bush pilot is picking us up to go back to Bethel in 12 hours, and we have a lot of packing to do in the morning. After trying to sleep for about an hour, I get up and get a glass of milk. What we don't say in the report is eating at me. Here in the Eskimo villages, we're watching the painful assimilation of the Yupik world into mainstream America. Cultural genocide in action. These kids are growing up in a twilight zone. Their grandparents don't speak much English. They don't speak much Yupik. Whole families sit huddled together in one overstuffed chair watching Dallas beamed into their homes from the huge satellite dishes now newly installed across the tundra. The suicide rate among high school boys is 10%. Substance abuse is endemic. Domestic violence is common. Are Tina and I causing the same harm as Dallas? These kids are American. They're dying to be in the TV version of America. But out here, they still live something close to a traditional subsistence lifestyle. Fishing, seal hunting, berry picking. And then at school, they study English, economics, and history from Hiawatha to the Holocaust, like every other American kid. We are bringing joy to these villages and skills to these kids. How can we be on the wrong side of history? Sure, we're bringing American circus with roots in Europe, not in Alaska. The clown acts have nothing to do with their lives. The makeup doesn't look like anything they've ever seen. But they take to circus skills like skates on ice. I'm sure we can do better. Maybe we should weave in some Yupik stories or use some traditional patterns in the makeup. Anything to help link the circus we're bringing up from San Francisco to the real life of Tundra Villages. Cozy, back in my sleeping bag, I'm trying to imprint the faces of the Queathluck kids in my mind. Eskimo faces painted clown white. I've already forgotten some of them. Tina and I are fooling ourselves that we're different from Dallas. As a fall asleep, I have a nightmare image of us as the circus SS marching over the tundra in flap shoes instead of jack
0: boots. Well, we got about 15 things to talk about in that lecture. <laughs> yes. Let's start with the transformation you and Tina, who's your other your clown partner, yeah, um, and um, sauna partner, and how you transform what you're doing as you go from village to village, and do exactly what you outline there is to yeah. incorporate the local. You you talk about a little bit later about the the um, Alaskan Olympics mm-hmm. and how they do these traditional. Um, I don't I don't know what you would call it, skill sets or yeah you know, tasks like you would do in olympics like the the seal walk where you're on your your um, your fists and your toes and go across the, the yep. floor and how that's just a natural thing to put into a circus act yep. right because you yeah know, you talk about how you go into one room and it is quite different from any of the other classrooms you've been in because the man who's teaching is is native and he has the carved masks on the wall that are repre- – each one representing a character from a traditional story. In
1: my way of thinking. In your I, way I, of thinking. I, I, that okay. is interesting that the, the assumption that they're characters from traditional stories was mine – the Based answer their... I got about that yes. was a little more nuanced and not 100% clear so I wouldn't actually make that uh, uh, assumption so I, it's I,
0: not like the Mexican masks are used? no, no. or
1: Cormedian Delarte right, masks right. which was the, the framework I was going for I don't think so but I was not offered more details right. I'll just put it
0: that way there, was, it, there were certain it, things where people would explain things so far and then just stop
1: and as you got in the book, there were certain stories that were okay for us to hear.
0: Yeah, but you had to communicate with somebody else to find out if that was true before yeah. you told it. Yeah. Yes.
1: One of the big advantages was that the one of the few jobs in an Eskimo village and the primo job is the school custodian. Right. So you could count on the school custodian being a very well-respected uh, elder In the village, even if they weren't that old. Sort of
0: the mayor of the village.
1: Sort of, yes. I actually don't know if there was official mayors. There may have been, but that person was central to the village.
0: Someone who'd communicate with the incoming people.
1: And would uh, keep the kids real clear on whether the story that's about to come out of their mouth should or shouldn't. Right. And if the story shouldn't, I would almost never see what that communication was, but things would get quiet. More subtle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but both... In in the villages in southeast Alaska and in Nebraska. Oh, yes. The ability to be silent.
0: Well, the parallels. Yeah. I, I thought you did that intentionally. Absolutely intentionally. Okay. I did
1: not just realize it just now. Okay. <laughs> no, I tell you, it's one of the great things about writing a book is if you do it right, in my opinion, yes. there's a whole bunch of stuff you as the writer miss uh-huh. that readers will get and assume. And most of the time I smile and say, absolutely. Absolutely. But I have learned that it's actually I'm doing my job right if I don't know what a lot of stuff is in the book.
0: Well, you're being a reporter rather than a, an analyzer in that sense. It's
1: a good point. If, right. If I, got, if I analyzed and parsed everything out, it might not feel like life. Yeah. yeah.
0: But on the other hand, when you're sitting in the sleeping bag late at night and you can't get to sleep, that's a good time to analyze. Right. Okay. The other thing, and this is going to be a tricky subject. You discover three things that are endemic to the villages as you go through the tour. One is that the majority of the teachers are not there to teach so much as to proselytize their particular religion. And in some of the villages, there are several religions. I think you mentioned Catholic, Mormon, and Moravian. Moravian, Mm -hmm. yes. And each of them has a specific group of teachers who kind of stay together, separate, definitely separate from the village. Yeah. And um, are inclined to influence, is that a polite word for it? Convert. Convert's a, a blatant statement. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. write numbers down. I got so many people. Those heathens, now they're Christians. Yeah. I right. don't know
1: exactly how the process worked, but it was hard to see. And I, I have to say, I don't. this is many years ago. I don't know how things are now. Uh, but it was it was hard to see. And, and the way that most teachers talked about the kids and the rest of the village was painful.
0: Well, when you go back later at the end of the book, it's still going on even more so. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're yeah. not just using it to recruit the kids for their church. They're using it to recruit them as victims. Yeah. 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 It's a heavy book in some instances, and I want the listeners to know that. But that's yeah. what makes it stand above just a story about a guy who goes up and teaches clown skills to native Alaskans.
1: Thank you. I'm I'm glad. Uh it is heavy. I when I when, when I was writing it, and I'd say it's a, you know, it's a, a, a comedy about cultural genocide and, wow. and, and abuse. And, and people say, what? And they say, but, that, but that is at the, where comedy and tragedy smash right up against each other is, right. is always interesting to me.
0: Well, one of the things I discovered as I read your book is that your plays, you're often um, contracted to write a play yeah. about a specific subject. And they're in a clown f- format, I guess we'll call it, you know, with characters – and subjects that you would not normally put with clowns, except that when you back look back historically, you know, at the Commedia dell'Arte and, and all of the the histories of the um you know, the roving circuses through Europe and the what they did in the ring, you know, during the you know, the German occupation, et cetera, et cetera. You name it time, you know, whatever time of suffering it was, the people used that as a way to communicate hope.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I a number of years ago, I was commissioned to do a play based on three of Aristophanes' comedies. They, Aristophanes wrote three anti-war comedies. And he is a, a Greek. A Greek writer and a brilliant writer. Lysistrata is one right. of them, probably the one that people know most. And there are scenes in those that are so horrific. Yeah. And he plays them out for laughs. Knowing with masks, yeah, and very stylized. Knowing yes. his audience is is feeling that immediate pain. His his audience is all people who are at war, mm-hmm. uh, and and he would play it big and broad and wild. And there were some even scenes that I, I felt like I had to tone down from modern Berkeley audience mm. because it was just so harsh from from the ancient greek
0: right but if that's what you live with every day you didn't see it on tv you just saw it down you know a couple of miles from your village Mm, good point yeah okay so that's one thing we talk about tell us about what was the aha moment did you and tina talk about it whoever this you know made up person was that's with you and decide we are going to become inculcate incorporate as much as we can as outsiders you know more, so we will change the makeup. This is a let's talk about the makeup mm-hmm. shift and what happens. You get them all white clown faced and you can either put the you know the big nose and the round circles and the you know exaggerated eyebrows or whatever, but you don't.
1: In in some of the villages, the first was actually the first aha was to include some Yupik stories mm-hmm. in, and that was pretty early on in this one amazing village Eek. Because you had a really good storyteller. Because we had a really good storyteller, and we had uh, a culture that was – we could feel what uh, a a real vibrant Yupik culture might feel like. A lot of the other villages, it felt like the Yupik culture was holding on by fingertips. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this one, it was vibrant.
0: Let me ask – I'm going to interrupt. Yeah, please. One of the things you found was a significant um, role model, I guess is a good word, was the principal of the school at the different villages and what you found oftentimes is that person who had been a, you know there for a number of years was often somebody you know replaced quickly usually for a bad reason mm. yeah somewhere down in florida or whatever <laughs> yes um or they just didn't get it they they were completely separate from the local culture They lived yeah. in their little house and talked to the other teachers and that was it i uh
1: I'm not sure if I was being completely fair to, to all principles. I did. Uh, well, was, we meet three
0: or four of them. We meet right. three or four yeah. of them,
1: and uh, a few of them are not not the most lovingly drawn
0: characters. Yeah, that's true. Well, they're archetypes. Yeah. Okay? That's okay. You don't have to apologize yeah. for that. Yeah. You've got to have villains in this yeah. piece. Well, and if you give the villains a face and a name, even if it's not their real face and name, so what? The
1: the one I, I feel very comfortable in the one village who uh, had canceled our program. There had been a shooting in the village, and yes. uh, he uh, he did suggest that we could just sleep outside. Right. Uh, I decided that's enough of a suggestion when it's twenty five below out uh, that he gets to be the villain in the book.
0: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing in the backstory, I think we really should tell that because it's fascinating. Mm-hmm is that the person who did the shooting is a high school kid who had a gun, and they took the gun away when they came. And then everybody says, of course, there's uh, 75 other guns right here, so he could get another one. And he shot through the window at one of the teachers – and you end up, st- not you. I mean, the, the snow clown ends up staying in the home of that same self same teacher who was the target of that. Who was the target? Attack.
1: But but the boy got the wrong house, yes. and he ends up shooting through the wrong house. So yes, uh, as the snow clown and partner Tina arrive. And they're first told they have to leave or sleep outside, right. and then said, "All right, the little compromise was made you can teach after school, and you 'll stay with some of the teachers. Uh, Tina, you'll stay with this uh, couple, and uh, the other clown will go stay with this guy who's another teacher. It all seems fine until they yes. realize that he, he was the, the kid's still in the village, and you learn that by,
0: by the uh, the grapevine uh, yeah, of course, uh, yes, yeah
1: The grapevine works very well either to give you information or keep it away from you' Right, <laughs>
0: and, right. <laughs> Okay, should we go to Nebraska? Sure. Tell Nebraska. us how you got there and how many years later it is after your first uh, 11 villages. So...
1: Th-
0: and I, you, I mean, it's yeah. no clown.
1: So it's 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 15 years later, and um, so this, this clown has had a career that's grown quite a bit and in, in included playwriting, and uh, he manages to get this job at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, right in the exact middle of the country, and... It's part of a diversity program. Mm-hmm. So that has – and he had written this play about uh, his father and the Holocaust. It has lots of Jewish themes and, and that becomes the key. So that was the diversity it, in Nebraska. That's the diversity in Nebraska. Right. Correct. Uh, and in the, uh, in, in the book, he's got a, a lengthy stay In Nebraska, that includes a bunch of different work. Some of it is performing the whole show, but mainly taking up a scene from the play, a solo play, Mm -hmm. and doing it for a particular class, Mm -hmm. and then having a discussion with the students. And that last part, having a discussion with the students, which sounds, it just trips right off the tongue, in Nebraska, doesn't go like that. Uh, it, It can mean standing in front of students in silence for long periods of time. Then there was other things like field trips out to towns, high schools across rural Nebraska, and then going to a a very fancy high school in Omaha, and then going to a high school on the Omaha Reservation, which was voted the worst high school in America a few years before he arrived. Then there's the big stuff, which is creating shows with sets of students. And there's, in the Snow Clown, the the Snow Clown creates two different shows with two different sets of students. One being teachers. One being student teachers, correct, yeah. Yeah. The student students
0: yeah, going to be teachers, right? Yes, yeah. And l- let's focus on that because okay. that's, that's a good one to talk yeah. about. Um, I used to I used to supervise student teachers at San so you, Francisco State, and I had one, for instance, young woman who came through, and she was hair terrified of kids. And at the evaluation session, I sat down with the other two advisors, and I said, "She should not be in a classroom. She's not prepared. They're going to completely intimidate her." And they looked at me and says, "Yes, but she's gone through four and a half years of school. We have to graduate her." Uh-huh. And I said, "Well, that's doing a disservice to everyone involved." So, wow, having been there, yeah. Um, a student teacher is a really interesting thing. They're usually pretty young, mm-hmm. you know, twenty one ish, twenty two ish. Um, it's their first experience. that, in at this time, they didn't probably have lots of classroom experience. They were, they had, if I remember correctly, they were, six months, they were yep. going into a, a half a year, essentially, to school. Uh, going into it. Going they into it, They hadn't it, it, done yeah. it yet. So what you were dealing with, and, and you have this wonderful scene where you say something, and again, there's complete silence. And then one person speaks up, and then another person speaks up, and then there's complete silence. And it's an entirely different silence than the Alaskan silence. Mm -hmm. It's not a silence of misunderstanding or not wanting to reveal too much. It's just that the Nebraskans don't share.
1: And there's a big cultural – in my understanding, I don't live in Nebraska, but there's a – what I got was – Well, you're the visitor. I'm the visitor. You know,
0: that's why the outside eye is here. Yes. There's a,
1: a real value put on not creating conflict. And if what I or someone just said is about to create conflict, we're
0: going to go to silence. But you were there specifically to be the the, the, you know, the, thorn in the side kind of thing and make conflict. And you weren't going to let it lie there. You were going to make some pretty specific. And it had been a time, a historic time that you arrived where certain events that just transpired. Do you want to share that or leave that to the readers to find out? Yes, just leave it generic. Leave it, yeah. Uh, certain events had transpired where people were polarized, so we say. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um any comparisons with the world today are completely intentionalized. <laughs> yeah, it uh it did occur to me
1: um I mean one of the things that when I arrived I was trying to show off because I'm working at a big university and my aunt teaches at that right, university. Right. So uh, I put together this really Can slick... you show
0: off. Oh, come
1: now. Yes. A very slick syllabus with all these ideas, and I handed it to my boss, who is, to this day, one of my favorite people, and she laughed and said, this is wonderful, thank you, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, and then she said, "The," and she puts it down, she, she's very theatrical, so she carefully puts it down on her desk and puts her hands on it and then says... One thing you might want to know is that some of your students will be asking you where your horns and your tail are. And that's not because they're bad people. It's that they have been taught that Mm -hmm. as a Jew. Mm -hmm. So I love your syllabus. We may need to adjust it a little. (laughs) Uh, Did you know anything
0: about Nebraska or the Midwest at all? Very little. uh, And anything I thought I knew, I was wrong. Because you can't count Chicago. That doesn't count. No. No. And, and in I had, in
1: those days, I had uh, I had been to Chicago. I played in Chicago. But, yes, no. Yeah. I I, did, I learned as much about Nebraskan culture in my time there as I had. And it was as strange to me as I learned about Yupik culture mm-hmm. in, in the time there. In many
0: ways, yeah. Lots of similarities, actually. Uh,
1: surprising. It did not occur. It, I really didn't think about the similarities uh, when I was writing, so much as the basic similarity, stranger in a strange land, right. uh, artist as stranger in a strange land. That seemed to be there. Yeah,
0: but the artist's role is, of course, one to be, to start controversy, mm-hmm. right? But very or much not party.
1: something that's comfortable for me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, not yeah, comfortable for You talk for me.
0: about your family meetings, and then Tina talks about her Italian family yeah. meetings in contrast. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, the artist as provocateur is a wonderful thing and not... Where I have ever wanted to be, or consciously not,
0: where you feel comfortable, not at all. Because as I'm, I'm going through the the things that you've made and created in the book, every one of them is provocative.
1: I <laughs> so, right at the very end, yes. I had the I had a, the copy editor had already sent it back, which means it was it's ready to galaxy, right. I I decided I was not going to publish it. And I sent a note to a dear friend of mine who was one of my early readers, uh, Sophia Burr, who's a poet, and I, I trust her very much. And I said, I, I, tell me, I need to know, It's it's okay for me if the protagonist is offensive and clumsy in these scenes. I get it. That's what I'm writing about. But I don't want anyone to think that the author is offensive and clumsy. And being a poet, she wrote back with just one sentence and said, I'm surprised. I thought that the main thing that happens when cultures meet is offensive and clumsy. And that I, I Not that's, necessarily intentional. Though. Not no. But I that let me get past the I wanna stay safe. No, let me say I'm cool. Really. I'm from Berkeley. I'm cool. I wrote the book about some other person who was less cool to yeah. Okay, that okay. book well, goes of out. the psychologist and I stand reads it. into
0: that that you're trying to provide a comfort zone for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And she gave me that zone, which is uh, Jeff, that's the nature of the beast. Own if it.
0: you don't yeah. want to do that, okay. don't write the book. Absolutely. Yeah. But you did write the book, and I, I thank you for doing that. Oh, I, okay. I love it that you say that. Thanks. It is, um, I'm going to recommend it to our listeners the snow clown in the subtitle of that is cartwheels borders from Alaska to Nebraska. And I've assumed at first that you picked Alaska to Nebraska because they sounded good together because you could have said cities, you know, that nobody knew, but uh, is that why, or where did the second part come? Why the snow clown? Let's talk about that.
1: Uh, the snow clown came because I don't, do titles well. And uh, my <laughs> wonderful editor uh, is good with titles. And he, so he sent me a whole bunch of possible titles. And I really liked The Snow Clown. It seemed to, to speak to the Alaska sections really well. Well, there's a lot of snow in Nebraska, too. There is a lot of snow in Nebraska. Yeah. I don't – the weather is a bigger deal in the
0: Alaska sections. It wasn't because, there when you were there. But, yeah, yeah.
1: The, the – the, the I'm sorry. when, when only, the snow clown was there. The arts council only brings people out in uh, February and March because that's when everyone's busy. Otherwise, but February March, everyone is just bring yeah. yeah Hustle, I, 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 down. I, could, I could use some clowns right, right by now. Right, right. So you are only there in this um, in the in the severe weather,
0: right? So that's where the title came from. But they can use some clowns, but they didn't get what they thought they were getting, did they? You didn't just go in and walk in a room and juggle and leave.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know what they thought they were getting. We certainly got What did your boss
0: write a, about you were going to do when you were there? Because you were there as a um, arts counselor. So it's an artist. Right. You're there as an artist. Right. A juggling artist. A makeup artist. A Theatrical circus, s- mythology. Yeah, we were the artists, circus. circus.
1: Right. I think at first we very much did fit the bill. We were supposed to go into a show, mm-hmm. teach lots of workshops, and do a sc- show with all the kids in the village. And we, that was absolutely the form. At, over time, as we started to weave in more Yupik stories and and uh, even use the, the mask, the visual images of the masks in the makeup, it started to change into something else. And in the Snow Clown, I take that process even a little further where start to really use the stories, the Yupik mythology Mm -hmm. as letting the kids use that as a way to affect the village as a whole. So they're essentially doing political theater using an old story.
0: Yes. And did, I mean, you you, you go into the minds, or theoretically the minds, your version of the minds of the, the older grandmas and mothers who were watching And their reactions to this uh, white person's interpretation of their historic, you know, art, um, just history. Yeah. You know, their folklore. Um, And there were different reactions from different people, surprisingly. So let's go back to Nebraska and those teachers. You finally get them together Mm -hmm. to have a show and you do a dress rehearsal and people literally get so angry that they slam the door and leave. And you do not know the next the next day, or the mm-hmm. night, yeah. if there will be anybody to put on a show. Right. Tell us about how you felt. I'm sorry, the snow clown felt at that moment. Uh, the
1: this process of creating a, a show on a very fraught subject with people who didn't really have a choice—they were student teachers and they were signed. This was a class. They were. Yeah, but they to wrote do. their own parts. Didn't they, they did write their own parts, and they learned a lot in the writing of those parts. And uh, I can say without revealing too much that racism was was a key part of what they were working on. And they interviewed their family. They did research on the Ku Klux Klan site. They interviewed uh, people who were uh, avowed racists. They... Skinheads. Told Yes. Yeah. And they told stories, personal stories. And I was determined that this play, and it was really Reader's Theater that we were working on, was going to be a real play. That was, we were going to use metaphor, we were going to use action as well, we are going to use music, as well as the words. And as we went along, it was, to me, absolutely amazing that we didn't get in arguments. This this thing of Nebraska nice sets in, and even though we're violently disagreeing with each other, and incredibly tough, it's not like San Francisco, we're not arguing about it, we're going to keep it smooth, right up until the dress rehearsal. Right. And I think that what happens is once... Art has its own power, and once people are out there feeling it and doing it, and they start to feel, oh, I've been thinking about my little part, but I just realized my part's juxtaposed against their part, yes. and that is there's an energy going on there. Um, in my mind, that's what's happening with that freak out. Well, some the of the
0: parts also. being bigger than the
1: no this, yes some, the, of the some of the definitely parts definitely bigger than than the whole. than any given because part. that's the, the idea ju- that's exactly. the whole, yeah I mean and that frankly, is what the director gets
0: to do. Right. Yeah. And then you did that. Yeah. Or, oh, I'm sorry, Snowclown did that. You're having so much fun I am. With the, I am. The the lo- I'm, facts and Yeah, fiction. well, you know, I, I want to keep sure that we understand who's talking here. Okay, you have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on Northern California Public Media, KRCB-FM, where our guest has been the internationally renowned juggler, clown, teacher, playwright, author, raconteur, Jeff Raz with his latest book, The Snow Clown, cartwheels on borders from Alaska to Nebraska. Our studio engineer for today's show has been Anthony Garcia. Our station manager is Sean Knight. Radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Our podcast archivist is Mark Prell. The theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to welcome you to our next Word-by-Word show from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, February 10th. Until then... Have an absolutely fabulous New Year.